that the children will be standing in here. Uh, just 30. As you're turning, let me open up with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you this morning for who you are, Lord. We thank you for the text this morning that we have in front of us, Lord. The, the idea of waiting is painful, Father. So, Lord, may we be encouraged this morning from the text and from the scripture, from your Holy Spirit, Father. May you uh, bring alive for us the scripture this morning. Lord, we need your help. We cannot see things unless you give us sight. And Lord, we cannot feel things unless you cause the desires and the feelings within us. And so, Lord, we ask and we humbly seek your face this morning. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but that, uh, that worship this morning sounded a little weak. I don't know if it's because half the room's gone, but you half over here, pretty weak. Uh, this is the day the Lord has made. Uh, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Church, this morning we're continuing our series uh, through the Psalms. If you haven't been here the last two weeks, let me just set the stage for you this morning on, on what, where we've been, what we've covered, and in that, try and address what we are seeing right now play out in our world. In week one, just two weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 1, which summed up, says this, it says that there are two paths to life, the path of righteousness and the path of wickedness. Only two paths exist. No morally neutral path. The psalmist therefore encourages his readers to look back, to meditate on the law of God, on the scriptures, in order to live and move and have their being in the path of righteousness. Last week and week two, we looked at the other introductory psalm to the Psalter, Psalm chapter two, which summed up says that it is the Lord who rules and reigns over all things, and that he will one day gain worldwide victory through his king. And we know as believers in Christ that that day has actually already come. And the implications for this reality is the fact that in which we live, we should not then be fearful when the nations rage against God and against God's people. Now, I started off by saying that the worship this morning seemed weak in light of what's happened this week. You see, what we are seeing right now, in light of the Supreme Cooling's ruling just a few days ago to overturn both Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, is, is a culmination of the two great truths which we've talked about already. There's only two paths to live, and there's one God who reigns supreme. We are right now seeing the nation's rage. And it's insanity. Think about it. We are seeing people lose their minds over the fact that babies should have a right to be born. Think about it. People are right now rioting because they are being told that they, in fact, do not have a constitutional right to murder another human being. This is the definition, by the way, of uh, Psalm 1 when it speaks about the wicked who will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And here is the crazy thing. Like, as Christians, we have been against abortion for the last 50 years. Some of you have seen this whole time span play out in your entire life. But it is with this ruling and our subsequent celebration of it that the enemies of God have turned their attention to us. And have begun lashing out as if they didn't know this whole time 
We were waiting, hoping, praying, working hard to end this great tragedy in America. And the fact of the matter is, the tenacity with which the enemy will lash out at Christians is only getting started. The raging of unbelievers against God and against God's people is only just beginning. So let me give you what I aim to do in this morning's sermon. I want to urge you to put your hope in the Lord. Pretty simple goal. I simply want to remind you to put your hope in the Lord. Not in the Supreme Court. Not in a political party. Not in state governments. But to put your hope in the Lord. And so this morning we turn our attention to Psalm 130. Psalm 130 belongs as a part of a group of psalms, Psalm 120 to 134. All of these psalms belong together because each psalm begins with the heading, A Song of Ascents. And through these transitions, these 14 psalms, we see a transition. Psalm 120 opens up with misery and Meshach and ends with Psalm 134 and joy in Jerusalem. So let's look at this text this morning, Psalm 130. Let's read it together. It says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So first off in this text, we see that there's a need for hope. A need for hope. Look at, look at verse 1. He says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. This is emphatic trouble. The depths here in this passage refer, I believe, to the iniquities which the psalmist has created upon himself. These are, these are sins of which he has done, and he now realizes his estrangement from God Almighty. These are iniquities caused from his own actions, and I believe that because of the way verse 3 and 4 relate to verses 1 and 2. We'll get to that in a minute. The psalmist here is crying out from a place of deep, deep despair and distress. And if you read the 14 Psalms of Ascent, you'll, you'll pick up on this recurring place of lowness and distress. In Psalm 120, verse 1, it says, In my distress, I called to the Lord. In Psalm 121, it says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? You see, there's this lifting up. There's this recognition that, that we are low and that God is high. Psalm 123, verse 1, it says, To you, I lift up my eyes. Oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. Quick, quickly, flip over to Psalm 124, just a, a few pages back. Psalm 124, again, all these are related here, the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 124, verse 1, it says this, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging Water. So the depths that, that the psalmist in Psalm 130 is referring to has the same sort of allusion to the depths of the sea 
and the flood mentioned here in Psalm 124. And so the psalmist is in a place of, of great despair. He, he, he needs hope in something. But he doesn't give in to his despair. He doesn't give in to his desperation. In fact, he, he cries out to the Lord, verse 1. I cry to you. Notice this is present tense language. This isn't a story that the psalmist is currently telling of something that's previously happened. He says, uh, in the depths, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. I cry to you. Present tense. He's not telling of a time which had come before, but that right now, in the midst of his depths, he is actively crying out to the Lord. So, so we should ask the text, what do you say to God when you're in the depths? When you're in the depths of desperation, whether from iniquities you have committed or from the depths of the nations raging around you, what should you ask of the Lord? You see, the Psalms are not only honest in all of the feelings of the spectrum of humanity and our fallen condition in dealing with real depression, real desperation, real loneliness. Like it's always uh, attacking these, but it's also honest in how we should actually think about and process and, and, and what should we do with these feelings. You see, the psalmist is not asking the Lord to simply make his problems go away. Notice what he's doing in verse 2. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. He realizes he's in the muck. And he has no way to save himself. And so he asks the Lord, Lord, would you, would you listen? Would you hear my cries for help? Let your ear be attentive to the cries of his desperation for mercy. This is the standpoint, by the way, all Christians should pray to the Lord. This is a posture of humility, a posture of realizing that the God of the universe doesn't actually owe us anything. Like the God of the universe does not owe us anything. And the psalmist realizes this. Out of the depths, I'm crying, Lord, listen, would, you, would you hear me? Would you hear me? So this is the, the, the need for hope. Now, let me look at the problem with hope. Look at verse 3. He says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Notice the implication that the psalmist is drawing here. The Lord has every right to mark iniquities. That is, he has every reason not to hear when people cry out for help, when people cry out for mercy. And the psalmist is coming to terms with that reality and with the answer, no one. No one could stand. This is why the depth from which the psalmist is crying out in verse 1 is due, I think, to his own disobedience to God's word. It's how verse 3 relates and ties together the whole psalm. It's why he's crying out simply for the Lord to hear his pleas for mercy because he realizes he sinned. He realizes the Lord actually owes him nothing. He realizes that it is he who has went astray, not the Lord. And so to ask this question is to answer it. If the Lord would mark iniquities, that is, if the Lord would hold people accountable for the wrongs they have done, then no one on earth would be left standing. This means that if you were raised in this church, I don't care if you were born in the baptistry back here, 
And you've went here your entire life. You've never said a cuss word beside the silly cuss words that Christians make up. If you attended every church service with perfect attendance, you would still, on the day of judgment, not be standing before the Lord. Notice that the text lumps all of humanity together here. And it does it without naming a single sin. It simply states as fact, no one would stand righteous before God in judgment. This is the problem of hope. But notice when two colossal realities collide here. Look at verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. This is this, this, this but with you, even though the psalmist is saying, even though I realize that, that if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, no one could stand. Like we would all perish in the way, as Psalm 1 says. Even though that's true, God, with you, there's forgiveness. It's the turning point in the whole psalm. But there is forgiveness with you. This is the only time, by the way, the Psalter uses uh, forgiveness as a noun. It uses the verb for, to forgive many times, but here it uses the noun, the only time in all the psaltery. With you, there is forgiveness. You see, forgiveness accompanies the Lord. Wherever the Lord goes, forgiveness goes with it. It is part of the Lord's character. The authority to forgive and the disposition to forgive belong to the Lord alone. This means that the character of God is neither, listen, the character of God is not bent against us nor neutral in God's justice and righteousness, but it is bent toward us in grace and mercy. You see, these two colossal realities collide no more clearly than in Christ on the cross. You see, it was God's great mercy and God's great judgment that were poured out on the cross. Romans 3.21 says it like this. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And listen, verse 25 is very important. It says, whom God, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And then he says, well, why did, why did God have to kill Jesus? Like, why did Jesus die on the cross? And here, Paul answers that question for us. He says, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the problem, like the world wants to look at God and say, couldn't he just simply wave, uh, wave his hand and everybody be forgiven? Could God do that? That's what the world asks. To which we would say, no. Because if God did that, he would simply allow people to not own up for their sins. He would simply allow people off the hook. He would simply allow bad deeds to go unpunished ever. And the great problem of the Old Testament is that God seemed to do that all over the place. Like God saved Noah in the ark. Noah, although the scriptures call him a righteous man, was not a perfect man. He himself had committed iniquities. He himself should have been wiped out in all the world with the flood, and yet God left him alive. You see, God showed uh, 
forbearance, or he, he, he let David go off of his sins. Many, many sins. Even though he was a man after God's own heart, he, he, he seemed to just let him get away with it. He right now seems to let us get away with the sin in our lives, doesn't he? Think about it. God said, in the day you eat this fruit, you shall surely die, and yet they did not die right away, did they? Is God a liar? No, no, no. Listen, all sins everywhere, all iniquities. This is what the psalmist has come to terms with, by the way, here in 130. He's come to terms with the fact that all sins, all iniquities will one day be dealt with. As a child growing up, I don't remember if this is, I don't know if people still do this, but I would get in trouble at school. And uh, I would get in trouble at school. Right? Whatever that trouble was, detention, Saturday school, whatever it was. Um, but that wasn't what I feared. You see, what I feared was when I came home. And my dad would punish me again. Two punishments, one crime. Seems cruel and unusual, but... It was something about going home, riding the bus home on the way home to school, knowing that I had a punishment waiting for me. That caused me great anxiety. And you see, we are all heading towards a punishment. We've all sinned. All fallen short of the glory of God. That's what Romans 3.23 says. We should be leery of people who seem to beat their chest and say, on that day of judgment, I have nothing to fear. We should be leery of those people. Unless they have nothing to fear because Christ took the punishment. You see, all unrighteousness, all iniquities, all evil doings will either be paid for on the last day or they were paid the day Jesus died. There's no other way. So if we have not trusted Jesus, that he's paid the, the penalty for our uh, punishment, or for, for our uh, iniquities and our sin, then, then there still awaits a punishment for us. There still awaits a judgment for us. But those of us who have hope in Christ, we no longer sit under, thank you, Siri, we no longer sit under that sort of judgment anymore. And notice the effects of hope here on the psalmist, who's coming to terms with the fact that no one can stand righteous before the Lord, and yet with the Lord there is forgiveness. And so he says in verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. I wait for the Lord. This is another emphatic position of the psalmist. And it builds. Notice, what, what waits? He says, I wait for the Lord. Well, what do you mean? He says, my, my soul waits. And this results and a hope in his word. And then he, he elaborated. He says, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. These, those who watch for the morning refers to the watchmen or the sentries who stand guard during the night. Lonesome, tedious job, but also dangerous as they peer out into the dark for any signs of trouble. You see, one of the, if you've ever waited up all night, one of the most beautiful sights you can see is the sun on the horizon. They eagerly wait for morning light so that they can go to the safety of their homes and get much needed rest. And he says, compared to that, compared to those watching and yearning for the morning, the psalmist here is even more eager for God's morning to arrive. Perhaps he thought of Isaiah's word in Isaiah 40 where he says, but they who wait for the Lord 
shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Listen, what a morning to wait for. And this hope is produced in the lives of believers because God is faithful to his word. They hope for God to come through on his promises. They hope in God because of his character. We see this in the next verse. Verse 7, he turns his attention to the, to the rest of the congregation, to the rest of Israel. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. There's two statements and one promise here. Two statements, one promise. The two statements are about God's character. He's encouraging Israel, uh, and which for us would be, we should encourage the church. We should encourage one another. Oh, church, hope in the Lord. To which we ask the question, why? Why? Why should we hope in the Lord? Why should we wait for the Lord? And he answers it. For, with the Lord, there is steadfast love. This is a statement about the character of God. He says the Lord is faithful in his love. Now, this psalm doesn't give us any uh, examples of that, of any of the faithfulness of God, but listen, read the scriptures. They're filled with God being faithful to his word and faithful in his love for his people. That's the first statement about his character. The second statement is the Lord is abundant. The Lord has abundant capacity to redeem. It says, and with him is plentiful redemption. He says this, this, this idea of redeeming is to, is to ransom in, in Israel, slaves could be set free if someone paid the ransom for them to be set free. And, and, and the psalmist here is saying, the Lord, he's, he's, got, he's got a lot of that. Plenty of it. Overwhelming amounts of capacity to redeem. And then he ends the psalm with this. He will redeem. Not only does he have the potential for redemption, not only with him is redemption possible, but he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You see, the promise is he will redeem us. It's the promise of the text. He will pay the ransom. He himself will pay for each and every iniquity and the misery that they have caused. The psalm declares the certainty that one day all things will be made right. That one day that God himself will redeem Israel, not from some of his iniquities, but from all of his iniquities. This promise began to be fulfilled in Christ Jesus. The psalm says in verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. Jesus was the final word of God, the word made flesh. John testifies in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have beheld his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Through the death and resurrection of Christ, God paid the ransom for all of our iniquities. Before Jesus was born, the angel instructed Joseph concerning Mary. He says, she will bear a son and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's an allusion to Psalm 30, 130 verse 8. It is he, it is God alone who will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. Later, Jesus himself claimed that he had authority on earth to forgive sins. 
And still later, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in remembrance of his death, he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So Psalm begins, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. And it ends with this faithful promise. He will redeem us from all of our iniquity. So look, look right at me. I don't know whether you're in the depths right now because of your own sin or because the world hates Christ and therefore it'll hate us. Either way, a depth is created. But here's what I do know. The Lord reigns. We sang it this morning, Psalm 93. The Lord Almighty reigns and the Lord will be faithful to his word. Because of this, we can wait. We can put our hope And God, listen, we can do this a thousand different ways in our lives. Let me give you three from this text, and we'll get out of here. Number one, repent of your iniquity. Repent. You see, each time we repent of our sins, we are once again renewing our hope in the fact that we cannot pay for our sins by ourselves. Every time we repent of our iniquities, every time we come before the Lord broken and contrite, we are once again realizing... This is what it means to hope in the Lord. Like there is no other way, folks. There is no other way. So a few days ago, I seen a, a, a tweet from Elon Musk, and uh, someone was trying to tell him you should trust Christ and repent. And Elon Musk uh, tweeted back, and he said, uh, most of humanity, if, if the scriptures are true, most of humanity is in hell. And so I'll be fine going there with them. So the question for us is, is most of humanity in hell? That's the question. Yes. Yes. The Lord says, many there be that will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And he he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. says wide lots of people are wide on the path few there be that find it narrow is the gate this is what Christ says it's coming to grips with all of us who do not put our hope and faith and trust in Christ have no way to stand before God in his righteous judgment of us so repenting of our iniquities is once again putting our hope in the fact that he's going to be the one who redeems us number two We wait on the Lord. In your moment of doubt and unbelief, we're in your moment of being attacked by the enemy. By the way, it's coming. It's it's, it's here. Like already this week. You can't believe some of the things people have said about, about me. It's coming. All those who desire to live a life in godliness will face persecution. That's what Paul said. It will happen. So we wait on the Lord, whether because of our own doubt and unbelief or being attacked by the enemy. Listen, we don't run to other things. We don't run to our guns. We don't, we don't run to the government. We don't run to all the other things. We wait patiently on the Lord. We wait for him. And number three, as, as the psalmist does here, we, we, we simply point others to Christ. The push of verse 7, it says... Oh, Israel, put your hope in God. Put your hope in the Lord. And so we, too, rely and we wait and we hope in the Lord by pointing others to Christ. 
When was the last time you shared Christ with somebody? When was the last time you simply looked someone in their eyes and told them to repent of their sins because Christ is currently reigning and ruling supremely? Listen, the world doesn't believe us. I don't know if you know that. I know we live in kind of a, a weird Christian, Christianese kind of land, but the world doesn't believe this. And it's becoming more and more evident every day. Therefore, we should point others to Christ. We should point them to the great hope that we have in the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we rejoice this morning. We rejoice because we know that you are still on the throne. Lord, we rejoice because we are starting to have to wrestle with understanding, do we have the right to murder people? The world is starting to ask these questions, Father. Lord, that is grace from you. And so we thank you for that this morning, Lord. But we also know that there, are coming, there is coming a day, Lord, where the lines will be drawn. Lord, we will not be able to ride a fence because the Psalm 1 says there's only two ways to life, two ways to live, righteousness or wickedness, no in between. Father, I pray that we will wait on you. We will put our hope in your word in the finished work of Christ on the cross. We would stand firm. We would no longer be the silent majority or minority. That we would not be silent at all, Lord, but that we would point others to you. We would encourage the brothers and sisters around us to run to you, to put their hope in you, even though the nations rage. Father, we pray you help us this week. May we apply these truths in our daily walk. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.